I got a new spot. They got a new spot in the room. Mm-hmm. I'm back on the couch. It <laughs> was just it was a fad. Uh, it'll come back maybe when Tanya comes back. <laughs> we'll put Tanya in the straw chair next. Yeah, good little wicker chair, man. My cats have fucked that thing up. Look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> it fits with the whole decor here, though. Yeah, yeah. Rustic. Damn. So, um, interesting, interesting day, interesting week online. But we're not going to talk about that today. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what are we going to talk about today, Tom? You, you tell me you've got about uh, 20 <laughs> manuals over there printed out in staple. Like, let's cut it up for a minute before we get to that, because what I'm about to unveil to you is one of the darkest things I've ever uh, encountered, come across in the wild, in the nonprofit wild. Oh, God. So let's let's cut it up for a minute. Let's, let's establish some baseline Let's talk about our, our norms. <laughs> Let's establish our norms. Yeah, let's establish the norms. Let's get some baseline levity. Um, what we recorded yesterday, and I feel like I, there's some items I had yesterday, and I just need to. What we need to do is um, tell. We need to reintroduce. Man, I was I was thinking yesterday. We um, remember we were talking shit about the thoughtful coal miner, and then um, in our group message. Uh, I was like, oh, you know, they're all the same. Like, they're all the same sort of general format of activists. Like, Thoughtful Coal Miner and Morris Dees. And and Tanya was like, who's Morris Dees? Do you remember that? Yeah. She didn't know who Morris Dees was. <laughs> and, uh... Which is particularly strange if you're a woman. <laughs> um... Damn, yeah, and anyways, um, I thought a good cold open would be, uh, uh, Jim Akata, Jim Akata wanted some, Common one time said he wanted some real local people. Who <laughs> 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 was, who was just telling us that, uh, Morris Dees was buck dancing with somebody and Jimmy Carter was there? No, it was, no, it was, um, Joe Begley. Joe Begley. Was buck dancing, right? And Morris Dees had to be the center of attention too, so he jumped yeah, up there yeah, with yeah, him. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Joe Begley? <laughs> because he's one of these guys that, like, I mean, there's this. Um, what's that guy's name? The uh, Chicago sort of oral historian who Studs Turkle. Studs Turkle. There's a Studs Turkle book. I was going through a lot. Okay. So I signed up on Instagram, the Trailbillies account, right? And in doing so, I was like, um, I, mean, I need con- two things I need. I need some good accounts to follow. Yeah. And I need content. So on the first one, I went to your page and I started following all the people you follow. <laughs> I, I did the Well, I did the same thing. I was everybody liked the Trailbillies page that I like see on, on Twitter. I just kind of yeah. added it. I don't know. I just feel like we should be friends. Yeah, <laughs> no. I did that. And, uh, or wait, on our Instagram account? Did mm-hmm. you follow people on our Instagram account? Yeah, that you know that I, we've interacted with okay. on right. the internet. So you're you're operating on the Instagram account now, too. We've got No, I'm not operating on the Instagram. I'm talking about my own. Oh, okay. Personal account. <laughs> well, you can. You have, you have access to it. Okay. But I think it'd be fun just to put up, like... We shouldn't even have to do anything except for put up speaker pieces. Just wall to wall speaker pieces. Every day we just need to just <laughs> post one one gem from speaker piece, and that'd be our whole thing. Well, I mean, um, I've got some occasionally re- pics of us recording or something like that. I've got like, some good ones. Back when I was recording that Mountain Eagle story, I I spent days in old speaker pieces, and um, there's a multi day long conversation at one point about Bon Jovi about trying to get Bon Jovi to come to Whitesburg <laughs> when was this <laughs> it must have been the 80s or something the 80s or 90s I think we've always shot for the moon here haven't we <laughs> shot to the heart we, re- <laughs> <laughs> we really have you're absolutely yeah. right. we we aim high yeah and Red's like man why don't they just bring Jason Isbell back to Summit City <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, no, we we were um, 
We were aiming high in the... I, it was probably the 90s. Yeah. Regardless. Um, so uh, I, After Bon Jovi been on the wane. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Who Says You Can't Go Home <laughs> hadn't... Or what's the other song he's always got on the radio? There's... It's like from that early 2000s. It's just... One, oh, no, no. Uh, bow, wow. Now that's the... That's the saying so for the broken heart. But what's the other one? Now he's got... Yeah, that's it. That's right. Yeah. Tommy It's my life. It's my life. Never back down. Which might be the worst song ever recorded, conceived of. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I kind of like it. I ironically kind of like it. Yeah, I kind of like the voice box in it. <laughs> Peter Frampton, uh, yeah. <laughs> Roger Roger Troutman thing. I like the message of it. It's my life. It's now or never. <laughs> I like the message. It's got a good message. It has a good message. Never back down, Tom. Um... It's Bon Jovi sucks. <laughs> John Bon Jovi. It's poetry. I don't care what you say. My, uh, my little nephew uh, was doing a like a watershed project with my girlfriend, and he goes up to her and says, "I know this might have been a little bit before your time, but <laughs> and he's thirteen. He's thirteen. He would just turn thirteen. He's this tw- the one? He was like eleven then. You beat in basketball, and you were like." You made him say communism yeah, will win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's dan- he's in serious danger of becoming all right. I'm afraid. I'd say he's already, or at least MAGA. <laughs> he's ma- he, He's already MAGA out. Anyway, no, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. He came up to Alex. He said, no. "He said no. this might be a little bit before your time, but <laughs> you like John Bon Jovi? <laughs> so much confidence. It's just like like he knew about this cool band, right? That, right. That maybe she did, right?" <laughs> This might have been a little before your time, yeah. But have you heard of the Goo Goo Dolls? <laughs> um, I wonder if we ever did that. I did that to my sister. I was like, yeah, you know, when like all the like the shoegaze post punk stuff, goth eighty stuff came out. I went to my sister. I was like, hey, did you ever listen to the Cure? She's my, like, my bloody Valentine. Uh, yeah, I did because. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you ever listen to Talk Talk? She's just like, my brother is uh, angsty and. <laughs> yeah. You okay, buddy? Yeah. Damn. Um. Anyway, where are we going, John Bon Jovi? Well, uh, speaker pieces. Yeah. I got a lot of. I've got a lot of speaker piece backlogs, so we're good on the speaker piece content. Um, we can push that. To um. To the cows come home. I, I saw where you put the um, the highway one. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the highway <laughs> racist. That's one of the all-time gems. <laughs> I mean, there's so much potentially there. What was it, Tom? I mean, you had to remind me um, because there's so much. I mean, I I have so many questions. I have so many questions here. It's um, like I did not mean to. Yeah, yeah. To a certain person, I am not a racist. <laughs> I didn't know it was you on the highway, and I'm sorry about that. You know, just a little. Um, so much there, it leaves you wondering. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. So, um, yeah, I, but I followed a lot of people you were following, too, like tennis stars. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> I don't know. I want to see the world the way you see it. <laughs> okay. I want to see, I want to see the lifestyles of... Um, people who make a living swinging a racket. Yeah, that, I mean, yeah, that's basically all you're gonna get out of my account is uh, tennis players, rappers, and uh, NBA players. Yeah, that's about all I follow. Well, now I follow those people too. <laughs> so I'm gonna. Who are you following specifically? Um, let's go down the list. Guess let's give us a who's who of who's um. Big in the tennis game these days. We've got first up. We have um, just give me a second. Federer, obviously. I mean, that's that's a that's obvious. But who's um, who's this? 
Oh, Nick Kyrgios? Yeah. Yeah, Kyrgios is the man. He's Is he is he, good? he He's considered maybe the most naturally gifted <laughs> player of all time, but he's like a huge <laughs> asshole. Like, in the middle of matches, he'll like, I mean, these guys will be driving the ball at him as hard as he can. He'll just like hit it back between his legs and like, which is really poor form during a match. Like, he's you been fined several thousand dollars for his bad behavior. I think I've seen you do that before. But I like Andy Murray commented on his one on this one photo. When are you going to announce Mohamed Leani as your new coach? And then he replied, or wait, no, that's someone else. Sorry for Leani, but I have agreed with Nikki to be his coach next year. Am I right? Don't panic and accept the challenge. That's Feliciano Lopez said that. Oh. These dudes just talk to each other on the comments. <laughs> it's very, it's a very insular world. But I want to know, we're the Soviet tennis players, man. Man, the last great Soviet tennis player was Yevgeny Kofilnikov. Really? Number one in the world. And now Yevgeny Kofilnikov is a world-class golfer. So he made He retired from tennis, <laughs> like in maybe like in his mid-30s or something. Uh-huh. And then got in the... Uh, He's not like PGA world class, but he's like pretty like he's like ranked in Europe. Fascinating. So he's made money playing golf too. Um, but I guess he was probably the guy that was like the best Russian player around the time the Soviet Union fell. <laughs> probably retired like maybe in the late nineties or early two thousands. What about Thanasi Kokonakis? Kokonakis. Thanasi Kokonakis is the. Uh, he's the. Uh, Mr. Steal Your Girl of the uh, <laughs> ATP world. And actually, there's a funny video. He's very attractive. There's Damn, a, there's he's a, hot as fuck. There's a funny video of uh, uh, Kyrgios is playing this guy, uh-huh. and Kyrgios does something to piss the guy off, and Kyrgios goes, I'm sorry, mate, but Tanasi fucked your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> well... <laughs> So so Kyrgios and Kokonox are kind of the, the bad boys. Are they? The, the heartthrob bad boys. Look at him. He's hot as fuck. Yeah, What's good. his nationality? French? I think they're. he's Australian, about Greek-Australian. Jesus Christ. Kyrgios is Malaysian-Australian. That's a extremely Greek attractive Malaysian man. Greek-Malaysian-Australian. People should not be that attractive. Imagine if you were that hot, man. That'd man be, I, they, that would be deadly. I'd just, I just like to be about a five these days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a strong four. Uh, if well, what is he? Ten, right? Uh, about twelve. Okay, like a twelve, right? Uh, very, very good looking. Uh, Juan Martin Del Potro. Uh, he's the big Argentine. This is the premier tennis podcast of the socialist left. Yeah, Del Potro was. Uh, he's huge. He's like six six, number three in the world. Oh really? He he's the one of the guys. He's the Carmelo Anthony, I would say, of the ATP tour because he just hovers around the periphery of greatness, but never really, uh huh, pr- you know, pokes the <laughs> bubble. <laughs> what about? Oh fuck! I I uh, I clicked off Naomi Osaka. No, she's uh, Japanese tennis player. She's a badass. She, is, well, Grigor Dimitriov. Baby Federer, they call him. Really? Yeah, he's 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 an interesting character because he's got all the talent in the world, but he like chokes a lot. He's got the yips perpetually. Fascinating. Which I guess happens when people call you Baby Federer, but I can relate to that. I can relate to perpetually having the yips. <laughs> so he's been he's been beaten out in the first round of the last couple of like majors, and he was like the guy that's like picked to be like the next great thing. But also very attractive, though. Do you just have to be extremely hot to be a tennis player? I think so. Why are they all so attractive? They're not all that attractive. I mean, go look at Yevgeny Kafelnikov, the, the aforementioned <laughs> Soviet. Well, you didn't need to be in the Soviet Union. There was no social mobility or anything. It was just pure. Talent. He was born Pure to be a tennis raw. player, and he was going to have to carry that out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the other big Soviet player, well, there was there were a couple, but the other one is uh, Alexander Zverev, uh-huh. who actually, after the Soviet Union fell, moved his uh, family to Germany, and so he's raised two, Misha and, and Alexander the Younger, who they call Sasha Zverev. Uh-huh. They're... German, but they're Russian, but German, but... Um, Excellent tennis players? Oh, yeah. Zverev is 
he's he'll probably win like a million grand slams or something. Fascinating. He's like he's like he's like twenty and he's like already like beating Federer and shit. <laughs> Misha's brother's kind of old. He's like in his mid thirties and kind of a I know, could, middle of the pack player, but I mean I could probably beat Federer if I needed to. I mean he's going out of uh, he's he's not as good anymore, right? Mm, I do nah, have the sh- he's still number two in the world I, I at thirty seven. <laughs> I do have the strongest legs in Letcher County, so, you know, I, uh, um, I was reading this article yesterday, it was, uh, they had all these old, like, really great team, like Andre Agassi, talking about playing Federer, mm-hmm. and Agassi said that Federer was the only player he ever played that, that he never knew where the ball was gonna come at him from. Really? And said that he basically Andre Agassi, who's one of the three or four greatest players of all time, said that Federer rendered him a very pedestrian player. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. I mean, wasn't Agassi like by the end of his career, like doing meth and stuff? Wasn't uh, that was that was mid career, man? He was. Uh, he so was, he was doing <laughs> like at the height of his career. At the height of his career. <laughs> Like he was number one in the world, then like kind of fell out of the Smoking top one hundred. My man. Yeah. <laughs> Married Brooke Shields, lost all his damn hair, but was wearing like a wig. I mean, you know those shirts that's like, give me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Yeah. yeah give me the confidence of Andre, Andre Agassi doing meth at the height of his career. Oh yeah. <laughs> I've got it under control. Well, okay. <laughs> what's funny is that you could tell how corrupt tennis was because he actually failed drug tests, but it never really came to light. So I guess somebody paid somebody off. What do you say when you're you're drug testing the be- one of the best play- tennis players in the world? And, and he's smoking <laughs> crystal. <laughs> <laughs> You've got it, the drug test right in front of you? Like, <laughs> I think they probably knew it would be horrible for the game because, like, you know, it's like tennis wasn't super popular and, like, finally you had a guy that was, like, exciting and making people watch. Yeah. So they're just kind of like, <laughs> we're just going to pretend we didn't see no, this. No, it would have made it more exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's another thing, man, in sports is we just need to quit with, like, all the, like, bans on PEDs. Like, it's so stupid. Tweaker culture and tennis culture can coexist. It's so weird. It's... <laughs> That might be the ultimate crossover. Like the <laughs> ultimate unexpected crossover. This yeah. like posh, very Tony, like, you know, like this week there was a headline, the director of the French Open won't let, or was trying to get Serena Williams not to wear her cat suits, like the little skin tight right. body suits I saw anymore. That. Right. And she wears them, not for fashion, but she has blood clots. And so she uses them to kind of control them. Really? Yeah. Um, and so it's funny that you got this like, these people have a stick up their ass about tradition and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and even yesterday at the U.S. Open, one of the women's players, uh, Cornet, took her shirt off, uh-huh. like during the match, like Hell just yeah. to like kind of switch it over to the other side or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, what, I don't forget what she was doing, but she got like an ethics code violation. Remember they did that. Uh, but men can do that. Men can do that, but women can't. What, what, uh, remember during the Women's World Cup in like the nineties. When I don't remember who it was, uh, Hi, Abby Wambach was that when it? She took her shirt she off, took her shirt I think. Off. or maybe it was Hope's. I can't remember one. And she just had like a sports bra underneath, it was like the most PG thing ever. And people were absolutely my god, <laughs> <laughs> it's like if you guys never been to the beach, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, fuck that. Um, you're right, allow PDEs into all sports, it would make sports so much more fun if everybody was fucking juiced out of their mind and hitting Just home runs that tweaking. would that would solve baseball <laughs> if all tennis players were required to get high on club drugs <laughs> if every time you pitched you had to be on lsd yeah yeah, yeah doc ellis seriously sports are declining right attendance is declining at games nfl's in the toilet baseball yeah. attendance is in the toilet basketball is on Look, the rise again but the trillbillies have your secret to um, to success, to bringing it back. Drugs. Drugs. <laughs> drugs. <laughs> just, just, just all the, all the state, like you've got like the French Open or whatever, um, and just the stands are filled with just incredibly wealthy people and tweakers. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's funny. I think, uh, you know, people get their, get, uh, in a tizzy about, um, 
you know, there's like runners that have like both sex organs, right? Yeah. And so like specifically a South African runner and I've and her name escapes me right now, but she competes for the women's but she has also has male sex organs too. And so everybody gets like in a tizzy about like, oh well if if what what's gonna happen in sports if we just, you know, normalize you know, trans rights and all that kind of stuff. Is that how's that gonna work out? It's just like all these motherfuckers roided it up <laughs> anyway. It's, exactly. They're all ostensibly on what does it have jetpacks. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, exactly. So that's that's fascinating. I don't know. I, I mean, it's that. it's. I mean, it's you know, I just I don't understand the the dehumanizing of that when like sports is already kind of like just everybody's on PEDs anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, just. Uh, just play music, man. There's and mostly no- I just say that to spur a little conversation around that because I can't <laughs> wait to see the dumb shit people come up with. <laughs> I thought I'd have to be a little bit of a provocateur. <laughs> You're crazy, man, if you think women can compete at the same level as men, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. It's like, okay, you know, whatever. Let's just... Uh, I mean, I guess um, I I hadn't really thought much about it. I hadn't given it much thought because, you know, I'm not really a sports not really a sports not guy. Not a sports guy. I stick to the arts, which is much more accepting of diversity. Nah. I'm just kidding. It's all it's all fucked up. But um but uh but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway. Anyways, what you got <laughs> printed out over there? <laughs> all right. Now that we're a sports podcast. All right, all right, all right. All right. So what I'm about to read to you is going to um, it's going to make you grind your teeth. It's going to um, make you feel incredibly disturbed and disoriented. Um, sort of like you just wandered out of a bomb shelter that you were in for like 10 years or something like that, and yeah. the world has passed you by, and you're not even sure you understand reality anymore, yeah. or what makes people tick, or anything like that. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I want to preface this by saying that I don't know anything about the uh, organization that the person who wrote this um, works for. Um, I don't. I don't think this is reflective of the organization necessarily, and I, I don't even have an opinion of their work because I don't know anything about it. Um, it's just kind of indicative, like, of a larger trend yeah. in, in our sort of culture and uh, a certain segment of the industry right now. But someone sent me this um, in my work email, and uh, and this was sort of going around in the um, sort of nonprofit circles for a little bit. You may have even seen it. <laughs> Maybe you've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, check this out. <clears throat> it's called... Changing our narrative about narrative. The infrastructure required for building heavy metal. narrative power. <laughs> That's heavy metal. By Rashad Robinson. Uh, this is from April this year. Narrative is now a big house. Narrative is now a big buzzword in the field of social change. That is more a testament to people wanting to understand narrative, however, than it is to testament to people actually understanding it. Evaluating our overall approach to narrative, as well as the specific narrative changes we have determined to achieve, comes down to a foundational question. What is our own narrative about the role that narrative strategy plays in social change? Our own narrative about what it is, what it takes to do it well, and what's at stake in our success. We tell ourselves a story about storytelling, a narrative about changing narratives. What purpose is it serving? Is it the right narrative? Is it the one we need? <laughs> the story of me, the story of we, the story of us. Yes, 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 yes. All right, dude, look. All right, so look. Um, this this article, it's it's written more as a paper, and this isn't just some kooky. The, the person that wrote this is the executive director of the organization Color of Change, okay. which is a racial, racial justice organization. All right. 
So that's why I preface this with I don't know anything about uh, their organization really or the work that they do. I don't think that this is reflective of their work. Um, I've got no opinion about any of that. But All I know about color trainers, I've signed no less than 17 of those <laughs> petitions. I have two. <laughs> I mean, several. I get their emails. I'm a sucker. In my so, personal email yeah. inbox. <laughs> um, but no, this is, this kind of, this thing is uh, taken seriously in the nonprofit world. Yeah. So this isn't just indicative of just one organization. This is something that a lot of people buy into. Yeah. A lot of people um, sort of incorporate into their sort of activism, praxis, whatever the fuck you want to call it. Um, and it is deeply concerning to me. It's deeply concerning to me, and I'll get to why. Say more about that. Um, <laughs> no, read on, but I'm saying. Say more about, oh, yeah. <laughs> about why it's concerning to me. Yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. Okay. This paper presents a high-level outline of just some of the components of strategic thinking required to create the right story about narrative change within the progressive movement, with a focus of the components related to building the infrastructure we need to build what I call narrative power. Three needs for change in our orientation stand out. One, we need the ability to follow through on narrative and cultural dispersion and immersion over time, across segments, and at scale. Okay, okay, let's <laughs> let's unpack that a little bit. <clears throat> so, let's read that again. What, what did they say there? What's... We need the ability to follow through on narrative and cultural dispersion and immersion over time, across segments, and at scale. Here's what I don't understand about a lot of the... Uh... The social change space, I think, is the new, uh, the new way uh, to describe it. Yeah, is oftentimes there's a lot of words like that that are strung together that don't seem to like. I, I don't know what he's talking about here. I don't either. Respectfully, I I don't know what he's talking about here. I think I do, and okay. he hides it far into the piece. I'll get to that. Okay, I'll get to what the actual crux of this article is and what he's calling for. Okay. I'll quit interrupt. That's okay. <laughs> no, it's um please weigh in. If you see or hear anything that triggers your senses, uh, your bullshit senses. Number two, we need actual human beings to serve as our main vehicle for achieving narrative change. People who are authentic, talented, equipped, motivated, and networked. We're out. <laughs> I just like the framework for this is actual human beings. It's like, yeah, that's the whole point. You need actual human beings to create social change. Right. <laughs> but again, I'll get to why that 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 point is so absolutely bizarre in right. a second. Number three, we cannot. This one is really really good. We cannot forsake the power of brands. They're re the relationships responsible for the way that most people come to change their thinking, reshape their feeling, and redirect their behaviors. <laughs> so, just to, just to recap. We need to be able to infiltrate the culture. You know? We need to be able to use actual human beings as spokespeople for our... I don't know beliefs movement yeah. or whatever and we gotta get those brands baby <laughs> the left needs brands <laughs> so the whole framework of this is basically uh, saying the left can't compete or currently the left can't compete with the right wing's propaganda machine we don't have brands we don't have the actual human we can't brands. compete with them because we're not playing by their rules <laughs> I guess I guess that's it. Um, so, or well, no, that doesn't make any sense. We have to double down on playing by their rules and in their system if we're ever going to affect change. That's is what I say. That's yes, that is it. That is it. So part of doing, it's part of achieving those three goals is creating narrative infrastructure. Tom, narrative infrastructure. Infrastructure with respect to building narrative power and achieving narrative change is not about these things that he just listed about uh, developing framing, putting more PR firms in position of speaking for us, etc. Narrative infrastructure is singularly about equipping a tight network of people organizing, 
on the ground, baby, and working within various sectors to develop strategic and powerful narrative ideas, and then, against the odds of the imbalanced resources stacked against us, immerse people in a sustained series of narrative experiences required to enduringly change hearts, minds, behaviors, and relationships. So we're going to send everybody to narrative <laughs> camp. You're going to go to narrative camp for the summer. Exactly. <laughs> Here's my problem with narrative, and I'm not, and I don't knock people that 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 like narrative is their thing because I think I think there is a purpose there but here's why I think ultimately it's not necessarily the best way to convey all the ideas and like affect change or blah 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 whatever. <laughs> the reason is this <laughs> look on your face. take for example something like the right our enemy has already I think I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this, but let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. Maybe the the verbiage will come. But think about like let's take an issue like gun control, which uh-huh. I know not all leftists are anti-gun or whatever. It's not I'm mean, right. just talking about in, in the general sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you had liberals, you know, him and Hong Kong for gun control and all this kind of stuff. Well, the reason that narrative doesn't work in for that example. When it became okay to just slaughter elementary school children like in Sandy Hook. <laughs> yeah. Like what 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 how can you narratively one up <laughs> that to push people to change? Exactly. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're exactly like, right. The extremities have been so well that's not the right word. Let me think of how to say this. Basically the right has normalized the most grotesque stuff on every issue. Yeah. Has pushed it to the margins to the point that, like, almost nothing matters anymore. That there's not any story <laughs> that's going to one-up that. No. No, the closest you can do is, like, um, the closest I get to sometimes that is reading about, like, Marie Antoinette getting guillotined or something like that. Just like, yeah. That's the only place to go from here. <laughs> I'm saying, like, like if you want to narr- the narrative is we start cutting heads off. Exactly. That that to me is the only thing that fulfills that, any kind the of trumps. Yeah. <laughs> that the uh, you know. Yeah. You know what I'm saying though? It's like things have just become so like the most the shit that was just deplorable ten years ago is just like standard now. Yeah, <laughs> man. We have children in concentration camps. Yes. Um. Yeah. No story is gonna undo that you know what i mean we have children in con we have ethnic cleansing uh, on a on what is looking to be a massive scale there was a story this week about how the trump administration is trying to take passports away from people living at the border yeah. in the united states yeah uh, yeah i uh, you're 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 that's the best example um more fundamentally narrative power is the ability to change the norms and rules our society lives by Narrative infrastructure is the set of systems we maintain to, in order to do that reliably over time. <laughs> what I'm confused about is, like, how are you going to convince anybody of, of this? For example, if, if this is really what you believe, are you really going to go out into the streets, up the hollers, into the projects, into the slums, into the factories, and be like, listen, bro... The problem isn't power. The problem is the stories you tell. The problem is the story you have in your mind. Which is just patently what, false because yeah. we have all the stories out there. <laughs> the, and no. again, and again, look, 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 I'm not anti-narrative just out of pocket. Like, I think that's that's still important, but I don't think that's like, the narrative can't be your main thing, in my opinion. No. Well, no. And I'll, I'll get to... <laughs> well, I'll get to why... This is funny. We need to build the infrastructure that will make those... Um, okay, well, hold on. We can make videos and put them online and have them reach a few hundred people or reach a million people for a minute. For the moment, even leaving alone the question of whether those videos have the most effective approach to content and framing in service of our ultimate goal. And ultimately, they don't because I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> I could watch a, a fucking AJ Plus video or a fucking Here Now video or whatever's <laughs> yeah. out there about, like, the most like evil shit being done to somebody, uh-huh. and two weeks later I'm going to forget about it because we're on to the next thing. <laughs> exactly. Like really, honestly, the best thing the narrative folks can do is in the 24-hour news cycle. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> we need to be. <laughs> Trump's not completely. We need to be organizing against the, yeah, big, the, the big networks. <laughs> we need to build the infrastructure that will make those videos known and loved and referenced by millions more people in a way that influences their lives. And we are simply not set up to do that in the way that corporations, religious organizations, and the right wing are set up to do it. So why the fuck do it? Why not do something else? Yeah. <laughs> like, why are you tra- Why are you trailing them? Too like why are you taking their lead? That's another thing. That's another thing that kind of speaks to your whole idea about the the pathology of the of I say the left and heavy air quotes the Democrats also yeah, uh, and they're like fetishizing their own impotence. That phrase you come up with that I repeat so often, but it's also like like why take cues from your opposition in that in that way, dude? So this gets at something that I found very fascinating. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but in in our world, our little nonprofit world, right after the 2016 election, there was a I was approached by more than one individual um, who was had some harebrained scheme to basically recreate on the left what the Koch brothers had done on the right. Do you remember this? Like the, I I remember I know who you're talking about yeah, that. specifically people wanted to create a progressive Koch brothers. And I can't figure out if they it's they exist, pal. It's called Michael fucking Bloomberg <laughs> and Warren Buffett and Warren right? Buffett, and like all these exa- George Soros, like it exists already. You <laughs> fucking imbecile. No, I can't. Just, I can't figure out if like 2016 broke their brains so badly that they um, that they like started just desperately grasping for anything that could help them win again yeah. and so they just look to the right or, or or if they're just craven sociopaths who just like want as much foundation money as possible i think that's part of it but also too is like they don't know that there are no new ideas under the sun <laughs> yeah you know what i mean so when you think you've got some sort of innovative scheme to up in the Koch brothers yeah. Trust me when I say that you don't, and there's already a blueprint that we have in place <laughs> that works, and we just can't get these motherfuckers on board to save their lives because they yeah. want to hold on to the last thread from fucking the well, resistance this, order. Two, two points I want to make about that. The first is that this is why I can envision a world after Trump. This is, you know, I mean, like, I hear some people say, um, you know, like, Trump was the sort of... Uh, was the sort of um, what would the word be? Was the sort of thing that like broke the narrative, or I don't know. It 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 it's the thing you can't see beyond. Yeah, I can I can very easily see beyond it because this just cuts through the bullshit. This just shows you that like most social change. I'm using scare quotes. Is done in a business environment that is attached and entrenched in the status quo. That's it's exactly right. <laughs> We can't even talk until they get beyond that. Exactly. And there's nothing to talk about for that. I mean, and, yeah. and listen, and listen. I'm not saying, you know, me and you had a little back and forth about this the other night. I'm not saying that we can't win liberals over to our way of thinking and all this kind of stuff. But it's not going to be done by appealing to their sense of, like, narrative and. You know anything that they've done in the past that they that is their like current conception of how we affect change, whatever that means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, just reading this document, what I realized is that you have an entire sector of society yeah. that is totally siloed off from reality. Yeah, like that's that's insane. It, it, it would be one thing if it was just like just some sort of uh, wing nuts who didn't have a lot of money, but man, we are talking about. The most powerful people on yeah. what passes for the left. Look, look, look. I, I want to read you something. There's this article in the New Yorker that came out this week about like about how ex- philanthropy has exploded in the last 15 years. Yeah. In the past 15 years, some 30,000 private foundations have been created, and the number of donor-advised funds has roughly doubled. Um, there, I, the, at one point, this. Um, this article even puts a number on the amount of, let's see, the growth in foundation assets 
in that time, since the 1930s, has been staggering. From less than a billion dollars to more than $800 billion. That's how much money is tied up in the philanthropy sector alone. $800 billion. That's a defense budget, man. That's a yearly defense budget. That's a defense budget. (laughs) (laughs) That's fucking incredible. Yeah. So it's just not, like, this isn't, this document isn't just some, like, lone work of some isolated individuals. These are people who have billions of dollars at their disposal, and and they're so siloed off. Here's what's interesting to me, too, about that. Like, and I know a lot of leftists would disagree with this notion, but, like, all these, like, wealthy benefactors that want to sink money into, again, what passes for the left would be much better served if they would just give that money to poor and working people. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, you, just you, go find, if you, if Appalachia's your thing, if uh, make South a Drake Chicago's video. your thing, make whatever. Make a Drake video. Yeah, get Drake out there to give big, whatever you need to do to feel good about yourself, just put resources in the hands of people that need them. <laughs> that, that would bolster... It would change far more than sinking, like, millions and millions of dollars into, like, liberal organizations. Listen to this. The Gates Foundation alone... This is from an article I'm reading that was in the New Yorker this week. Gospels of Giving for the New Gilded Age by Elizabeth Colbert. The Gates Foundation alone will disperse more than $150 billion over the next several decades. In just the next 20 years, affluent baby boomers are expected to contribute almost seven trillion dollars to philanthropy <laughs> that's incredible that is well and so okay so like in the region why in the reason why this article is so maddening to me this or this uh this thing about narrative is because it shows you that like you've got a tr- multi-trillion dollar industry this document is a perfect representation of it because it it floats around in these circles. This isn't just like something that was sent to me um, just sort of like uh, on a listserv. Nah. People in philanthropy really buy into this shit. I mean, I'm telling you personally just because I know these people and I've yeah. read their uh, grants and I've read their, you know what I mean? Like, they think this is how you affect change. Right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Oh, it's cult talk. It's cult talk. It's totally cult talk. Listen to this. This is this is totally something you would hear in a cult. Narrative power is the ability to create leverage over those who set the incentives, rules, and norms that shape society and human behavior. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Let me just scratch out narrative and put money. Yeah. Money is what yields leverage over those people. Exactly. Material. Material power. power. Property. <laughs> No, (laughs) nobody except for like fucking Fred Rogers has ever been moved by somebody's story, (laughs) like in a meaningful way. Like I think most decent people can sympathize with people's hardships and so forth and whatever, but that doesn't spur everybody to like, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) It also means having the power to defeat the establishment of belief systems that opposes, which would otherwise close down the very opportunities we need to open up the, to achieve real impact at the policy, politics, and cultural levels. Dude, it's just cult talk. The, the, when, I, I worked at, when I worked at the Clinton Foundation, the big refrain was, Bill Clinton would often say, we need private citizens doing public good. <laughs> And so basically, instead of holding any power structure accountable, including ones he's cozy with that butter his bread, he thinks it should be incumbent on me and you and you not well, not even me and you, poor and working people to sort of take care of their own to like, you know, you see you see a Guatemalan farmer that's, you know, been <laughs> been hampered by the monsoon season. You need to send him. One hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, what what this is proposing? And we're going to micro lending. Yeah. It, we're still and what we're going to do, what we're going to do is we're going still going to charge him interest, but uh, it's going to be a reasonable interest. Yeah. No. Well, that's the thing. It's you've got Bill Clinton saying that, and then the sort of other end of the spectrum is of that is like this is basically saying that like you have to go to the people and convince them that like there is another story they have to believe, yeah. and that's the only way that they can envision any kind of like political horizon. Yeah. It's it's insane, dude. You, I, there was I remember when I was there too. I mean, I hate to keep sharing Clinton stories, but <laughs> they all gave us this on, this this book, and it was about it was called Clinton on Giving, right? It was oh, like all his his, yes. his tome all about philanthropy <laughs> and all this stuff. Yes. And he starts with this like really like heart wrenching story about this 
lady in in New Jersey that was had been a housekeeper. I think she was a Haitian immigrant had been a housekeeper. Yeah, I, the details are fuzzy, but stay with me. <laughs> And so she had like saved up her whole life as a housekeeper and all this stuff. And when she retired, she had like two hundred thousand dollars, like yeah. to to live on the rest of her life, which is also just like insane that like you retire at sixty five, and if you're going to live twenty five more years, you have to live on God a pittance, right? Right. But and and whatever you know, Social Security's throwing at you, I guess. But he tells this story. It's like, but there was this girl in her native Haiti who was so sick from full-blown AIDS that she had to be, like, carried to her desk in school, and she was, like, on death's door for, like, several years or whatever. And that woman, through the generosity of that one (laughs) poor and working person who gave every dime (laughs) she had ever made to get this girl the antiretroviral she needed to be healthy again. Oh, my God. God. And like on the surface of that, you're like, oh god damn, that's so moving. But then it's like, if you had knowledge of this, why didn't your ass <laughs> pony up for that? You could save that girl, poor girl, a lot of heartache. Listen to this. This is this is, dude. I want to print this off and frame this. This is fucking perfect. This this symbolizes and encompasses, embodies everything the nonprofit industrial complex stands for. Yet we have not developed a coherent narrative about poverty's injustice that is motivating, nor a set of experiences that will be anywhere near compelling enough for people to internalize that new narrative and the mental model embedded within it. That is, we have not invested in the right narrative infrastructure, neither for developing the narrative itself, nor for making it powerful. That's just, I I, I wholeheartedly (laughs) disagree. (laughs) Stories abound of the, like... like, you know, the guy that died because he couldn't afford insulin. There's a story of another guy that had an abscessed tooth and put off going to the doctor because he had to work a factory shift and he ended up getting a fever and dying. Like, as stories abound of, like, <laughs> just, like, senseless deaths and destruction yeah. over just... Here, here's a, here's, um, here's a, convin- a motivating, convincing narrative about poverty. It exists because capitalism. Right. It exists because a small amount of people at the top hoard resources and just grind people's lives to admiseration to extract as much capital out of them as possible, out right. of their labor as possible. Yeah. And that this has going been going on since the beginning of fucking time. Yeah. That the that the history of the world is the struggle of class. Right. <laughs> That's a convincing narrative. That is convincing. And it's one that I think people could fucking plug into. And it's, it's one class and they it's one it. that if you were a fucking serf or if you're a fucking wage laborer now, you're gonna identify with. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like what more do you need? Yeah. People understand that on a tutive level. They're not stupid. They don't need a new fucking narrative. Yeah. Go talk to them, and, and they understand class warfare. Every every day, these people, Bill Gates or whoever, they wake up and engage in class warfare. They're not asleep at the wheel. No. But but we're fucking getting bogged down in this bullshit about... <laughs> I swear to God. It's, it's, like, it's like even if you, you know... Scandinavia is big in the news this way. <laughs> even if you like that sock dim model or whatever, all this kind of stuff, even if you think the banks should just be a little bit nicer, eventually all that shit is going to lead us right back to where we are. Let's say you create the nicest form of capitalism you can. Give it a little time, and we're going to be back in the same fucking crisis. Yeah, again. look, you, yeah, you, yeah, you've not fixed the problem until you have... The proletariat, you have working people running shit. Running Prisoners shit. Running, running shit. The shit. indigenous running shit. Yeah. It, that's that's a, a narrative I can buy into. Yeah. I don't need to get some micro-individual um, updates on my narrative software yeah. to understand what injustice is. And I don't think that regular people do either. No. The only reason this exists is just because there's fucking money in it. Yeah. That's the reason why they have to do this song and dance about, like, narrative and about, like... Um, about not addressing the actual core roots of these problems is because there's trillions of dollars in, in it. it. Yeah. <laughs> look, we're, I'm just calling it for what it is. It's all bullshit. Okay, look, earlier I said we were going to get to the crux of what this article is really about, what it's really looking for, what they really want. And so now I'm going to get to that. <clears throat> 
it, it, it comes under this. We need actual human beings serving as our main vehicle for achieving narrative change. Okay, this is what it is. The right wing beats us here almost all the time. They create echo chambers, as we know, but they also provide... Because <laughs> Dems don't do that. They also provide platforms and create their own celebrities who are always on scripts and trained to build dedicated audiences. You know, say what you want about us, but we're not on script, baby. We don't have a script. We don't have a script. <laughs> It's all off the dome, baby. Yeah, creating narrative networks that entangle millions and millions of people in extremely deep and immersive experiences that reinforce specific values, ideas, desires, and norms. Dude, this, the, oh. Like, it's also just an exercise in just prosaic, like, teeth grinding. Like, you read this and it's just, we, we're so, like, we I don't, this it's so ill-defined like we're so lost at this point like these people are the people who want to recreate the Koch brothers on the left or whatever that they just throw whatever words they can possibly come up with into the mix and those audiences become motivated empowered and confident emissaries taking on their families <laughs> taking on their families their social and work communities and other spaces far outside of the right-wing spaces in which they were first immersed in these ideas and which they keep going back to for deeper and deeper immersion. <laughs> it is tireless, expensive work that they do well. It is far beyond comms. It is a culture, a business, a community life. What is the common denominator of the average Fox viewer? It's not a poor and working person. It's like what I was telling you the other day. Have you ever been you ever walked through a project and seen a fucking campaign sign or anything? Not once. No. These people the poor the poor and working people, they don't give a shit. The only people, the only reason why Fox News's message is able to disseminate into what they call the, you know, their communities. The only reason they're emissaries is because they're upper middle class wealthy people, and they have the power in their community to enact changes on a national scale. Right. These are the Chamber of Commerce people. It's, These are yeah. the PTA. This is exactly. Yeah. They don't just they don't listen to Fox News in a vacuum and just like, oh, I'm gonna go out there and. They're incredibly powerful people. Yeah. <laughs> um, dude. It, but okay. So then the, the last the last point is though, we cannot forsake the power of brands, Tom. The relationships responsible. Uh, I'm, I'm for gonna the buckle way up for this one. The relationships that are responsible for the way most people come to change their thinking, reshape their feeling, and redirect their behaviors. <laughs> um. Uh. So. No, there's really nothing to say about about brand, but there, um, it's a really telling thing. You've got this. Okay, it's actually, I got another article. I, I didn't know if I wanted to talk about it or not, but there was an article in the Washington Post, an op-ed. People don't vote for what they want. They vote for who they are. All politics is identity politics. And I think that this is interesting because you've got two examples of people making some in insane deductions about human nature that have no evidence. You can't... Okay, so for you've got on this side, you've got people who say that like the only way people to relate to anything is through brands and through... Um, through... Uh, I don't know. Like, symbolic narratives. Right. On the other side, you've got people who say identity politics is everything, all politics is identity politics, and that people only relate to the larger body politic or... or or getting anything out of it through who they are, through their own identity, which uh, that that is making a a deduction about human nature that has no basis. Right. It has it has no evidence. I guarantee you, if you went to people and appealed to them on what they want, on the things that would make their lives materially better, you would you would get quite a bit of positive engagement a hundred percent also the other thing too is like if you're in the discussion of talking about like what the opposition does that's what advertising does <laughs> exactly. you know what i'm saying if exactly you, if you buy this thing exactly and this is going to get you this is going to make your life materially better because right whatever yeah yeah no i mean i'm not trying to listen i'm not trying to necessarily throw away the entire concept of narrative building or whatever. I mean, it has use. It has value. 
when you put trillions of dollars behind it, it becomes an industry and this external thing that's really creepy to me. <laughs> that is very, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, you know. Right. If it's your, if it's your thing, if you think it, it holds water and you're kind of organizing, right. do it. Right. But if you're pumping literally amounts of money that could change the lives of a lot of people on the face of the earth. Right. I mean, you could give every person a dollar. <laughs> Just on what you're sinking yeah, in the narrative. Every the person alive, a dollar. <laughs> so I'm not trying to, you know, totally discard that idea. I'm not tired. I'm not trying to totally discard the idea of, of identity politics either. But if if you also believe that all politics is identity politics, you're going to have to explain to me what your plan is for going to white people. Because if that's true, if you think that all politics is identity politics. Explain to me how you're going to appeal to white people. People that don't have a bargaining, like have no right, because you, nothing what, to gain by doing the right what, thing. Well, what you're going to do is you're going to wind up appealing to them on terms of their whiteness. Yeah. And that is going to be very dangerous. Right. I mean, you have to do that to some degree. If we're talking about racial justice, if we're talking about liberation, we have to engage with that. I'm not saying we, we don't. But if that's the first thing you're going with right out the gate... um. You're going to, if I had to guess, you're probably going to engender a lot of reactionary politics, yeah. and you're going to get the kind of articles that we saw a couple weeks ago from our boy Terrence, the the Wa Terrence, the Dark Terrence at yeah. the Washington Post. Yeah, <laughs> so creepy. You 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 have to go to people with a vision for how society can be based on. That that has that is rooted in class warfare, right? I, and I'm not I'm not saying that in a class reductionist sense. I'm not saying that class is everything and 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 whatever. I, hopefully, we'll get into this if and when we have Assad on the show yeah. for his book. But um, but it's complicated. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I I uh, I thought you might like this article though, Tom. I just, I just, as soon as I read it, I was like, Tom's going to love this. Changing our narrative about narrative, baby. <laughs> that's just, that's how we, that's how we got to keep the money flowing in. Yeah. We got to change our, that, next year we're changing our narrative about changing our narrative <laughs> about changing our narrative. Yeah, we'll do this thing. And we'll just keep piling it on until it becomes increasingly <laughs> ridiculous to the point where these, like, even these philanthropy tryhards are like. Look, in capitalism, there's always going to be money in um, being the sort of loyal opposition and in creating alternate narratives and all this other. Well, you bullshit. have to have that for capitalism. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. like <clears throat> the mask is completely off and it's just boots to the neck. Right. Like exactly you know, dystopian. Like exactly. Whatever. Exactly. So it's like it behooves the elite and powerful to have an enemy or yeah. to ha or to have like an opposition. That's why I can very easily imagine a future after Trump. There is a future after Trump. It's the Gates pouring $150 billion into philanthropy every year for the next 20 years. Yeah. They're going, like, they don't want Trump, all right? They want a world that is, uh, you know, ruled over by managerial elites, professional elites. Yeah. And uh, they want means testing. They want all these, you know, they want to be able to sleep at night without feeling guilty over the fact that they've enacted massive exploitation on a massive scale yeah. <laughs> to get their money. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly right. And unless you deal with that, I don't know, you're just going to you're just going to keep changing the narrative about the narrative about the narrative about the narrative. It's going to keep being a cycle that just pulls more and more money into the drain. Yeah. And nothing's going to change. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyways. Yeah, no, I agree. It's uh, you know some of the most infantile bullshit you'll ever hear is the people that throw their hands up and say, well, that's just the way it is, and that's the way the world's always been. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I think, I know it's it's a little cliche, because when she died, you saw those memes, but the, what's it, the Ursula K. Guinn quote, where she's like, the the divine right of kings was also thought about as being insurmountable. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, there there are other ways to organize the world. Exactly. <laughs> to reorder the world. Exactly. We've outside done Outside of this, and it, we've done it. it yeah. It's happened a few times. Uh, there have, you know what I mean? Like, Haitian Revolution, French Revolution, there have been times when the established order of things have, um, I don't know, it, 
people reached a point where they they needed a rupture with that. They needed a break on a mass scale <laughs> from that. And um, what better way to do it than hang some Frenchmen? Exactly. Suck <laughs> <laughs> it. Um. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So, anyways, that's all I got planned for today. That's just at an hour and two. That's good. Let's wrap it. You want to wrap it up? Wrap that shit and put it out. <laughs> <laughs> Direct to you, the baby. Fuck out of there. <laughs> um. All right. So before we go, then a um, couple of things. A couple of things. Um, I said this on the Patreon episode, but I'm gonna say it again because when we recorded yesterday, we didn't know it would be going on Patreon. But um, I'm just gonna. I might as well just say it again because I want to maximize. Coverage, baby. I want as much narrative spread as possible. We need out. We need out there. We need as much narrative spread as possible. We need the story out there, folks. <laughs> Can you do a, jo- a good John Madden impression? Uh, that's a good John. A good. A good bit would be John Madden co- quarterbacking a narrative um, strategy. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I think it'd be lost on so many people though. Like they only know his voice from the video game now. <laughs> yeah. Like, who's John? Yeah. You're right. I guess you're right. That's that's of a difference. Era, have we, are we that old now, Tom? Have we outlived yeah, the John? So. Who, who's the who are the big um, football commentators now? Uh, what what was his name? Um, they're all old football players now. Yeah, I guess John was John Madden. A football Steve player? Young. I mean, you got uh, Troy Aikman. Troy Aikman. All those uh, guys. Yeah, you've got what's the guy's name who coached for the Raiders and then he coached for the Tennessee, and then um, Lane Kiffin. Is he not? Or wait, no, he's probably still Lane Kiffin. Yeah, he's who's where's Lane Kiffin at now? <laughs> Fuck, I forget. Uh, this is totally. He's in Alabama for a second. I think he got fired or something. I, I anyway. <laughs> um, I forget. Anyways, John Madden quarterbacking narrative spread is pretty funny. Okay, so um, I, I like I said, I mentioned this on the episode. So you'll hear it twice this week, but uh, I want to give a shout out to all the prisoners striking right now. Um, a personal. A special shout out to all the prisoners in the Lee County Correctional Facility in my hometown of Hobbs, New Mexico. Um, ooh, ooh. In a, what used to be a Wackenhut prison. That's really weird. There was a private prison company called Wackenhut. I think they've changed their name now. Um, I'm not really sure where the name Wackenhut came from. But they were sort of like Geo Group and uh, oh. Correctional CCA or whatever. Yeah. Didn't CCA change its name? Didn't one of yeah, those? Yeah, CCA is. Um, <laughs> what is it? Like something bogus. sounds almost like Union Carbide or some shit. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. Now. But there's there's three prisons in New Mexico currently um, participating in the prison strike. Hopefully, by the time I'm saying this now, it's still going on. Um, but I remember when they built that prison in the '90s, and um, and it's a, it's a state prison, and they do some really horrendous stuff there. Um, just as like they do in all prisons. But um, anyway, shout out to them, and hopefully I can find some links to put into the bio of this um, to where you can support that. Um, it's a big story right now that we haven't really covered on the show a lot, but in our personal lives we deal with a lot. Um, so I don't know. I, we just kind of um, let it go by the wayside. But we're trying to maximize coverage here. Um so there's that. Uh, try to see how you can plug into that in any way you can. And then I want to say, follow us on Patreon. Um, and by that we mean give us money. <laughs> yeah. My roof fell in, people. Yeah, Tom's roof fell in. <laughs> <laughs> I need it, goddammit. <laughs> Tom's roof fell in. I personally just paid off a fuckload of debt last week. And um, I was joking on Twitter about how, like, Debt collectors will just keep calling you like like it's not just the easiest thing in the world just to ignore the call. Yeah. But at a certain point, it really does wear on you. If you're getting two calls a day, voicemails, they're sending letters to your parents' house. Oh, God. <laughs> Every time they'll send one, my mom will send me a screenshot of it like, is everything okay? <laughs> Same here, too, dude. Um, so... With your help, I paid off a lot of debt. Thank you. I will always love our fans um, because you helped me get out of some debt. 
we got some we got some shout outs too but well, first off tell them the link it's uh so it's patreon it, if you don't know what that is you've probably heard us say it we probably need to stop taking it for granted that people know what it is patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trillbilly workers party no apostrophes or anything like that we do weekly episodes every sunday we put out an episode um this sunday we'll have an episode with tanya Next Sunday, we're going to have an episode with our with the homie Scott Benson um, at Bombs Fall on Twitter about uh, Christian music. I think we're recording that today. Yeah, we're recording that today. Excited about that one. Tom's got a Tom's about to head out. I've got a song in my heart too. Do you good? Yeah, it's by the Newsboys. <laughs> Perfect. So we got a couple of new Patreons to shout out, and I think actually we've been shout, shout we've been the, shouting Patreons out on the Patreon. On Patreon. But let's, let's give people the yeah. We're gonna give you uh, a shout out on the public. We'll go. We'll just go episode. We'll just go dance. Kick it off with our latest Patreon, uh, Kellen Singer. Kellen, thank you. We got Michael Park. Michael, um, thank you for your support. Mike. We got Eric. No last name, but thank you, Eric. Thanks, Eric. You don't need to give us your last name. It's probably, probably better that be, you don't. Probably best that way. <laughs> uh, shout out to Stephen Wills. Shout out Stephen Wills. I like your last name. As it, I hope it's spelled like uh, "till the wheels fall off." <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but Ste- Stephen till the wheels fall off. Wills. Yeah. Uh, Dom in. Shout out Dom in. That shout out Dom. Uh, shout out Stephen Pate. That shout out Stephen. Uh, Robert Jones. Shout out Bob. I don't know if people. Call, my dad's name is Robert, but people call him Bob. Uh, open Source Farm. Shout out Open Source Farm. Uh, Clay uh, Moffin. Moof. Shout Mo- out Clay. Mugan, uh, I apologize on behalf of my co host who can't pronounce your name I'm, correctly. Uh, Clay M. <laughs> Big shouts. Let's shout out Tanner Jarman. Shout out Tanner. Thank you for your support. Bless you. Tom, you, your name may Tom sneeze. That's a good thing. Uh, Joshua Zuck. Shout out Josh. Let's shout out Max. Shout out Max. Thank you. Thank you for your support. Mike Andrick. Um, shout out Mike. I think that that covered. I think that that gets us back around to the ones we were doing. Yeah, I was just going through the list last week. Because no, want to read off every page. Everybody's <laughs> shout out. I, everybody that's in my email. Hannah Arias. <laughs> Thaddeus Weagle. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen, $5 a month will get you access to all the episodes you want to check out. There's some good stuff, really good stuff on our Patreon. Um, there's some bad stuff, but mostly good stuff. Mostly good stuff. Um, and like I said, if you're like sort of wandering through your re- week like I need more Truly Billy's content, go there because that's all good shit and it'll make you laugh. So patreon.com slash Party, um, and... That pretty much covers it. That gets it. All right. So we'll see you all on the other side.